Okay, so we are about to spend some time in the mid-1930s, but before we do, we need to talk about someone named Mary Ellen, a.k.a. Ellie Larkin. Okay, listening. Do you know her? Um, not yet. I know of her, you might say, but I don't, we don't know each other at this time. So she's blonde. She's a regular at the Seaside Diner. She wears a beautiful kind of like turquoise blue ribbon in her hair. There's been a lot of rumors. There's been a lot of talk on the internet about where she was January 6th. Oh my God. No, no, no. So we haven't really been like privy to these rumors. We haven't been part of it, but American Girl released on TikTok what I think are some of the most iconic lines in an American Girl TikTok to date. This is their opener in like a Mary Ellen, you know, simulated voice. There's been a lot of rumors going on around me, so I want to reintroduce myself. Oh, God. Here's what we learn, and we know American Girl has taught us a lot about pants. She says, I slay the pant game, girl boss behavior only. (laughs) No. My dream is to be a rocket scientist, hashtag women in STEM. So they also recently said that Mary Ellen Larkin is most likely to know what really went on in Area 51. I don't think that this messaging is helping. I don't. It's so weird that they're like, okay, to correct any opinion that she may have been at January 6th, we're going to say she's like the female Elon Musk girl boss. Yeah. Wearing pants. Somebody needs to call a crisis PR person right now. (laughs) Right now. Wear scandal when you need it. Oh my god. Um, Welcome everyone to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. I'm not a Mary Ellen affiliate or a hater. Important. Neutral in all things Mary Ellen. Okay, I think that's I think that's wise. I mean, I have an aunt Mary Ellen, like I'm pro Mary Ellen's. Perhaps not that Mary Ellen being at January sixth. Like, I'm new to this rumor, so I'm I'm genuinely I'm stunned. But I do want to recommend that American Girl and or Mary Ellen and her her team. Let's say she has a team. Reach out to her. Do you see that person on TikTok, Allison? That's like Molly B or something, and she's a crisis PR person. I don't, but I'm going to say this. If you're trying to dissuade people that your girl that you're putting out was not part of any of these kind of, you know, counter movements, don't tie a red ribbon in her hair in your next photo shoot. That's tough. That's a tough one. But it's giving MAGA hat. Like It's I, giving MAGA hat. There's not a lot we can do. It's like we're not, this is not the time for that. I mean, frankly, it's never the time for that, but this is definitely not the time for that. But I just, I want to say, like, can somebody please tag, if you know who I'm talking about on TikTok, Molly, what's her name? Because first of all, her name's Molly. That's in her favor. But she, people tag her in videos and she's like, okay, here's what I would recommend they do as like their crisis PR person. So she's analyzed like Olivia Wilde and the don't worry darling of it all. Adam Levine because of his Instagram shadiness and everything that's gone on with that. And I love her because she'll literally be at her daughter's soccer game. And she's like, I stepped away from the soccer game. Um, my daughter's team is losing, so I'm taking a minute and I'm going to be like weighing in on Adam Levine. But I mean, that's who we need in this moment. Someone who's like, I don't care what's happening. I'm stepping in and here's what Mary Ellen would do. Like, I would love her two cents. All I can say is like, this is not the move. Like framing yourself as a girl boss, that would not be my crisis PR pivot. 
I just to be quite candid as well, and I promise we will be jumping back a decade so we can get into the Kit Kidridge of it all today. However, aligning yourself as wanting to be a rocket scientist, you know, who created NASA? Nazis. Nazis were part of NASA. So I don't know that some of this counter messaging is doing what one would hope. No. I do believe after today was my first read, my first real true day with like Kit Kidridge canon, with like the first original material, we do have to talk about kind of the context in which she lives, which is she's a 1930s girly invented for the year 2000. And that's significant because she lives in a pre-9-11, pre-TSA world in all senses. But some of us have not forgotten other things. And some of us are kind of giving like strange cultural reminders and throwing up (laughs) red flags when we least expect. For a person who claims to not care about chronology, Mariah Carey seems to be giving history lessons at times that no one is asking. I'm just dying thinking about it. Listen, I mean, Allison, if we needed a cultural ambassador, again, she doesn't acknowledge time, but she does value history. And that's a hard pivot, hard juxtaposition. She holds many truths. You know, if you haven't seen the video where she hard pivots to talking about 9-11 and she's like, so nobody wants to talk about 9-11 and literally audibly in the crowd, you hear people like, what? No, 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 no. Well, you don't want to hear about 9-11. Huh? Nervous laughter. She's like, we're going to get into it. And then she kind of doesn't get into it. Somebody in the comments rightly said, this gives school assembly. This gives me writing an essay. This gives like, I mean, basically it goes from like kind of a commemoration to sort of like an acknowledgement of herself and then sort of an acknowledgement of women, question mark. And then she calls out Misty Copeland at one point. And again, if I was Misty, I'd be hiding in Radio City at that point. I would be like, I'm not here. Don't bring me into this. Then she comes, brings it all back around and she's like, this is for all the lambs and then performs hero. It's like, I can't, she's like, I played a role in 9-11. And amazingly doesn't invoke glitter, which there's a famous interview when she practically says glitter is the first casualty of 9-11 because it was released that week. Allison, what do you make of this? I have a question, which is what does an elder Kit Kidridge or what does Kit Kidridge's oldest daughter think of Mariah Carey? Are they only there for the big hair era? Do they stick with her through the Nick Cannon era? Like when and where do you think she embraces a fandom and when does she leave it? Because I, I do suspect that it's only a temporary thing. Like I could see her kind of having a weird infatuation with the butterfly moment mm-hmm. and then being like, I have to step away. Like well, in the home. yeah, I think that's an important designation. I do think that when we're talking about dismantling histories of white supremacy, which, you know, the Mary Ellen of it all, like Mary Ellen, I think, would be a fan of Mariah Carey until Butterfly. And then after okay. that, she has to divest. I'm going to say Kit and her granddaughter and her children's children and the whole group. Like, I'm a pro Kit person. I'm coming up pro Kit. Just met her into it. I think Kit and her loved ones would be with Mariah and appreciate the moment that is Butterfly. Like, again, speaking of history, we're dealing with the anniversary of the Butterfly album launch, which is celebrating her, you know, divestment from Tommy Mottola. Also, the anniversary of Velvet Rope by Janet Jackson. We're not getting into it, but like, these are two very, very important moments in music. Everyone, please put your lives on hold and go listen if you've not. 
But her butterfly moment is like, it's liberatory, it's celebratory. She just released a cover of The Roof that she did as a duet with Brandy. Like, lots going on here. But I'm going to say Kit is pro butterfly. And Mary Ellen, it sounds like from what you've described to me, because again, I didn't know about this press release. It sounds like she's like a pre a pre butterfly Mariah fan, if you know what I'm saying. I do. I also think that there's a lot of possibility that, you know, in the wake of the depression and after her inevitable wartime service, I do think that Kit is going to be radicalized further. There's a lot of discussion about her as a socialist, but I think in the home, like something changes, right? Like one of her grandsons gets a patent in Silicon Valley or something, and she's comfortable in a way that she's never been able to experience since being shuttled up to the attic. And so I think that's kind of how we get there. It's hard because with everything happening in, you know, this cultural moment, obviously there are so many other things going on, but like this hyper focus that Mariah has taken us back to 2000 into 2001, it's just made for us to rethink Kit Kidridge. Like I, I honestly, like I've We're never there. felt more prepared to be like back in that Y2K space. I am actually surprised because when this character came out, there must have been something within me that was like, I am just too old to engage this when really I was only 13. So I'm actually pretty surprised that she was never on my radar. Mm. But I don't know if sort of like my confidence was shaken by Josefina But I think that with this book, like Valerie Tripp is at her best. This is her zenith. This is her, this is her like pulling out all the stops. Like this is someone who's learned all the tricks of the trade. She's firing on all cylinders. Like this is her butterfly, if you will. Like I was 14 when this came out. I was deep in my butterfly clip phase. American girl temporarily in my rear view. But I missed, you know, I missed her moment, if you will. Like this is her firing on all cylinders for better or worse. Like she's you know, like not hitting the brakes on this. Like she's driving, it's no brakes, no notes, she's doing this. I think for me, this was also right around the time that I got my first personal computer, like my own PC that I could actually work on. Yeah, so this would have been like right around that time. And I think my whole world was kind of shifting because I was a freshman in high school. So I think I was just really kind of starting to look in other directions and I was reading very different kinds of things. And I do wish that I had read Kit as a younger person because I find her to be an absolute delight now. But maybe with like the angst of Y2K, I wasn't ready to be in the Great Depression. I think that's fair. I mean, I had my own like feeling of regret reading this book because her age is almost exactly what Fluffy was like when in 1934 and my grandmother's strongest memories were of growing up in the Great Depression and what that meant for her and her father dropped dead when she was three and her mother had to like really struggle to help the family survive and all of this stuff. So I have all these stories that she shared with me from her experience. So I really wish like as much as we bonded over Molly, like I feel like we really could have bonded over Kit. So I really just am regretting that I couldn't have her hot takes on these books and particularly like calling out what she would probably call like 
inaccuracies or half-truths with Kit, real or imagined, but, you know, I miss that we couldn't share this opportunity. Yeah, I think that she probably came out right at a time where, um, you know, people's living connections to this era, right, were changing pretty drastically. So, like, the extent to which you could connect with someone who had grown up in this era, I think even then people were starting to romanticize, you know, oh, like, you hold on to a lot of things because you grew up in the Depression. Mm -hmm. And I think now we've had a linguistic shift because we've lived through so many intense or acute recessions and other kind of, you know, panics or economic moments that there's no longer that same cultural fixation on the depression. But dare I say, like, do we just do this? Are we getting into Kit? Let's dive in. Like, I'm I'm so pumped to be getting into these books finally. So many people have hyped them to us, and we can't stress enough we had not read them before preparing for today's conversation. So I'm so happy that we're finally here. And again, we've said it a few times, but these books came out between 2000 and 2001. We're lucky there's still a six book arc. And I'll give us, um, there's actually quite a few different summaries for the book, but I like this one the best. Kit Kidridge is a nine-year-old girl with a nose for news. But since most of the news is about the hard times of the depression, Kit writes her own newspaper stories. She reports on the happenings at home, like the day mother invites fussy Mrs. Howard and her son to stay with them. Kit is excited to have a boy her own age to play with, but Sterling causes Kit nothing but trouble. Then, when Dad loses his business because of the Depression, Mother gets a brainstorm that turns the Kitridge household upside down. If I may, where is Ruthie in this write-up? Because Ruthie is carrying this book. Ruthie is a significant figure in this book, and the fact that Sterling gets so much play when he's kind of absent for most of this is sort of a shock to me. Ruthie is like the voice of reason. Ruthie is like the conscience of this book. She has some of the funniest lines. She, of course, is a best friend who has been given the distinction of having a doll made of her, which, as we know, a lot of the friends, aka Sarah, in the Addie books, among others, do not get. This book has a very interesting opening spread, which is we get a total of 11 characters that have their own kind of little bios in the front. And I think that's way of Val saying, like, whatever your budget was for Josefina, it wasn't enough. No. Nope. Kick it up. I need more. I want more. I need more. And, like, these illustrations, honestly, I'm so relieved to be back in this space. They are stunning. They're beautiful. These are, I mean, guess what? We might be in a depression, but you wouldn't know it from these glamour shots. I'm just saying. No. Everyone here is, like, made up to a T. Sterling looks really put together. Even cranky Uncle Hendrick. I mean, showing up, showing out. I should say also, I am reading two different versions of this book at once. I have the Kit Storybook Collection, which is why I have 11 illustrations in my front. It was worth it, if only, to see Will Shepard, a young hobo from Texas who is befriended by Kit. Excuse me. We have not met him yet. I don't, I I was going to say, I don't have 11. Oh no, I have the full spread that comes out in, I have the 2001 bound book that has all six stories together. And they're like, this is for fancy chicks who like Kit have only read about poor people in books, which is an iconic Kit Kidridge line. Um, (laughs) 
Um, and you don't get the peek into the past. They're like, we're not going to depress you with that. Nah. We'll do one retrospective. It's just the stories all the way through with one uh, mega illustrated section at the beginning. And we're kind of learning again. I think this is something that I increasingly appreciate about the books there's almost always something um, that's like up in the air about the family situation. Like in this case, you know, obviously we're going to learn a lot more about like the truth about dad, that he's lost his job, which is like a great American trope of the era. Um, but also the fact that like this household is not a strictly nuclear household mm-hmm. in the sense of like Kit and her parents. And part of this is kind of a gradual unraveling of how Kit and I think especially how her mother imagined their domestic life to be and then what it's going to actually look like for the next two plus years. Um, A great example of that is we learn early on that Kit has been given this kind of princess, beautiful pink bedroom. And she says, um, the room was a girl's dream, just not mine. And, and that's kind of like an early indication of like how much things are going to change and, and maybe some of them for the better as well. Well, and I think that was also a really important moment to me early in the book, not because of signaling the change that's going to happen economically with the family, but also how she perceives herself versus how her parents see her. Because I read that to be like, this is a princess room and I don't identify in that kind of feminine way. And like she, it then follows up by saying like, she prefers to play catch. She's a big baseball fan. And it's like, there's a lot going on with this where I actually understand now why so many people have written to us to say like Kit, they read Kit as queer or Mm -hmm. they like, you know, it's easy to kind of see that in these books because there's so much about her positionality or how they kind of develop or introduce her to us. That's like, I'm not like the other girls, like for better or worse, like, you know, my mom's made me this princess room. It's like, clearly she's introduces like a person of some privilege that the mom can redo her room in this fancy way. And then it's such a great detail because when that gets undercut by the family's reversal and fortune, it tells that economic story, but it also kind of positions her as like, when she makes her room in the attic, she can decorate it the way that's truly reflective of her, which is organized by her hobbies, which none of which include things that are pink or like princess play. So that was kind of interesting as a way to introduce her as well. No, and I'm so glad you mentioned the baseball because I know that that's going to be a much bigger part of her character. And it's one of the ways that Kit becomes kind of like bonded with Sterling is they have a shared love of a certain baseball player. But I read an article from the Cincinnati Inquirer right when from this book came out back in August of 2000, and they talk about how the previous American girls, um, including Josefina, Kirsten, Samantha, and Molly, um, they say, quote, were not assigned cities of residence at all. And they include Addie in that list, which is not exactly right. She lives in Philadelphia. She doesn't live in like some made up place like she's from Philadelphia. But apparently as part of this process, Valerie Tripp went out of her way to pick a specific city. Hmm. And she actually gave this reporter her list of all of the reasons um, why she picked Cincinnati because it fit all of this criteria. She had to have a city with, um, and this is a quote, a professional baseball team. Kit is interested in baseball, railroads. Kit meets a hobo, (laughs) an organized depression relief effort. This is my favorite, close proximity to Kentucky and West Virginia, so she could discuss the depression's effect on the mining industry. 
Um, Okay. Close proximity to the automotive industry, a large population that would provide boarding business. And then there's more about the WPA and FDR. And then this was uh, really extra interesting to me. Because of Procter & Gamble, there were people in Cincinnati who did not lose everything the way Kit's family does. To me, that was a crucial part of the story. So that was kind of a shock. Like, honestly, though, the most iconic line to me is railroads. Kit meets a hobo. I mean, were they not literally everywhere? Is that not kind isn't of that the kind point of? The, of yeah. <laughs> They're <laughs> everywhere. Oh my God. What in God's name was she thinking? I mean, again, this is kind of like, I think when you stand at the Sistine Chapel and you look at the ceiling <laughs> and you're like, you know what? I'll never, like, for my mom's birthday, she wanted to go see, like, Michelangelo's chapel like his paintings they're doing that thing where you can go like see them in an experience air quotes so we did that and it was like you're standing there and it's like okay they never they don't want to say he was gay or like he might have been gay so they say all this other stuff instead where they're like he loved to draw men who were naked like he never really seemed to like to draw women and you're like uh but the whole time i'm there i'm like okay i will never understand and neither will the people narrating this what was going on in his head so like they're taking it in one direction I mean, but even just looking at his paintings, like we'll never know like why he decided to make this blue and not red or whatever. And the same is true of Valerie Tripp. Like, I don't think we will ever, nor any literary scholar, be able to sit with her or her text and be like, and here's what she was thinking. <laughs> yeah, forget Foucault, but no, I mean, I mean, with wow. Tripp and this reporter, like it is kind of something of interest to me that in looking at other articles, obviously, right, something comes out about the place where you live or where you run a business or a newspaper, and people want to use that to stimulate interest in that place. And it was pretty compelling to me that over and above, people saw the fact that this was set in Cincinnati, even with the depression context, sorry, as a net positive. This was like a very, very good thing. They talk about how positive it is that this is happening and that it's a positive representation. And we learned that the last name Kittridge comes from a real man who lived in the era named William G. Kittridge, um, who was a six um, six foot tall man who was like featured in the society column. Okay. For whatever reason, like that name popped to them and they were like, that's the one. So, you know, kind of a fascinating moment. Um, Valerie Tripp did do plenty of research in Ohio, but I also like that that kind of insider baseball, like no pun intended, of how did she make these decisions? And I do think by this time there was a sense that it worked to have a real place, whatever that place might be, tied to it. Because by then their relationship with uh, sites like Colonial Williamsburg was starting to change. And even that is not real, right? That's not the same kind of real as like Cincinnati. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. I mean, I also wonder how much do you, what came first? Like, I don't know what her accessories are. Like, I'm truly going in with no information, but I'm wondering if there was also some development behind the scenes where they're like, we would like these kinds of accessories. Can this inform the story in some way? And and Val was like, no problem, Cincinnati, here we go. I think Kid is like an interesting, you know, character and in that you can make a lot of analogs, like thinking about myself sitting at a personal computer in 2000, the way that we meet Kit is she's sitting at a typewriter. Mm-hmm. 
her world is, you know, and folks have mentioned this with Molly, right? That Molly's world felt really foreign, but several people said to us, but she still had a phone that could ring in the house, right? Or there was a radio, like she had things that weren't super far away. Josefina's life would feel really different and distant from a lot of people. And I think for Tripp, getting to write a story in the 1930s, there's a lot about Kit's life that I think still translates or stays relevant today. Like tree houses haven't gone away, being nosy, like trying to kind of like turn family gossip into like elevated newspaper stories like that hasn't gone away but i love the way we meet her that she is banging away on the typewriter and we learn that that becomes an indicator of her mood like how fast or how hard she types yes and we learn that she's not good at typing but it doesn't stop her like she doesn't care i i love that i i mean like you're saying i think the introduction of this scene is something that so many people can map themselves onto and I'm also amazed you had a personal computer in 2000 because I was still rocking on my family's joint desktop computer, which was a nightmare because Rick would start a flight simulator flight in real time and be like, no one can touch the computer for 22 hours. I'm flying to Sydney. We all be like, (laughs) oh my God. But you know, like I did have a typewriter, which I know sounds bizarre, but like I had my mom's old typewriter from college. And I remember like performatively as a child being like, I'm typing, like I'm a writer or I'm doing this important thing. And I just love the sound of it. Like it was probably nonsense, whatever I was writing. And it the sound of it annoyed my brothers no end. So it didn't last too long. But I love that we meet her where she's like in command of expressing herself and debating with Ruthie, like how what they should write about. Or they're actually debating like her room reno. And Ruthie is like, you're insane for wanting a like Robin Hood, more like treehouse Robin Hood themed room and not the princess room that she actually got. So it's kind of a nice friendship moment too, where like, your friend is like kind of like you need to get real or like check yourself yeah ruthie is a yes and friend but she's also not afraid to ask questions so she's kind of like all in on the newspaper just because kit is all in on the newspaper and i love their conversation about whether they need to like diversify their segments and include weather and we get this line this is supposed to be a newspaper not a snooze paper and To your point, like, they are very well-versed in stories. Like, they're very interested in the kind of backstory of Robin Hood. They love to talk about that. And we learned that Kit has awareness or has read Nancy Drew and Dick Tracy stories, which is, like, very precocious for nine at that time. And I think they just kind of wanted to, like, shoehorn Nancy Drew in there. But that would be a bit like a child today reading, like, a brand new thriller that's come out or something from the mystery section. And I'm willing to give that to Kit and to Ruthie because I think that they're cool and I think they have money. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah. I also think it's interesting that on page four we get this detail. Mother had asked Kit to keep the typewriter in the closet, please and take it out only when she used it. But Kit always forgot to put the typewriter away. Besides, she used it a lot. The typewriter ended up being on the desk all the time, even though it looked out of place in the frilly room. So it's sort of like you get this really important detail. I I mean, I'm reading into this, obviously, but it's sort of like Kit is mapped onto her typewriter. It's like something she really identifies with. She can't fathom putting it away because it's always in use. But it's also something that the mother would prefer be out of sight, like in a young girl's mm-hmm. room. It should not be just out. And you can't you can imagine that she's not saying that similar when her brother was a similar age, Charlie. But um 
you know, I think that that's a really important piece of introducing, like there's some element of Kit that feels like she should hide parts of herself or that that's like an important thing for the mom, like appearances. And I think appearances are going to become really important as their economic status changes with the depression. So, you know, I thought that was like a really smart detail to introduce so early in these books. I was wondering, did you ever make a newspaper or something like it in the way that Kit and Ruthie do? Of course. I was also um, editor-in-chief of my school's paper for a period of time. Really? So, yeah. So, I was very interested in all of that. And I think part of, like, obviously, I was thinking as we're we're meeting Kit and she has her typewriter, I think that this book so wonderfully evokes for me, obviously, Joe March, right? And Joe March's move up to the attic. Every kind of trope about, like, the mad woman in the attic who is, like, writing away scribbling you know the scribbling women idea or or writing somewhere else but something i love as a kind of counterbalance to her relationship with her mother is how seriously her father takes these efforts right and i also love that because there's something about being nine or ten kid is the one because there are no cell phones who breaks the news to dad that people are moving into their house <laughs> and i love like how gleefully she runs out to meet her father to say that the howards are going to be staying and i'm thinking like that's a conversation that really should have happened between parents or people yes. paying the mortgage and instead kit is like this just in the howards are coming and dad is like for dinner and she's like nope they live with us now <laughs> and I do love the seriousness with which he sees her and he validates her interest. And I think there's a very similar energy here to a Felicity Merriman, right? The running out to greet the father, the immediate excitement about things that seem to be of his world, right? Newspapers, the broader society, and then kind of like the mom character, right? Who kind of doesn't get her or wants to force her to be a certain kind of way, like very much a Felicity dynamic all over again. Yeah, I think it's definitely a Felicity dynamic with the parents where you're sort of surprised that the dad is the one who's encouraging her to be more independent or spirited, I guess, as you would say in American girl terms. But I also like tip of the hat to Val again on the way that she wrote that scene because she allows the reader to understand based on your own positionality. Like if I read this as a child, I would be like totally with Kit and being like, I'm so excited to tell dad this big news development in my newspaper And then if you're an adult reading this, you're like, oh, wow, like you can like she describes how the dad's face kind of falls momentarily and then he kind of covers. Mm -hmm. So as an adult, you can read the scene in a completely different way or like understand the higher level thing happening, which is like, wow, my wife should have told me this, not Kit. Um, Or and as we then find out, he's sad because he knows that he's going to have to shut down his car dealership. He has not shared that with Kit by that point. So there's a lot of like what a child might know in that moment and simultaneously what an adult would get from that moment. And I think that's a really shows her talent at this kind of writing. We also learn, you know, this is a very compact book. Some of these American Girl books were going past like 70 plus pages. This one is not. This is one of the shortest ones that we have read in a while. And over the course of these pages, we have this transformation in which her mother is entertaining people for garden club. We really get a good sense of their kind of privileged position, possibly in society. And there is this very quick switch from, you know, redecorating kits 
rights room, presumably spending money. Everyone has what they need. And this is August, and there's a promise of Charlie going to college. Suddenly, within 50 to 60 pages, you know, dad doesn't own a dealership. He's paid out his workers. The people who had been staying with them as a courtesy and as a kind of luxury are now paying to stay there. They are boarders. They are really not in that much of a different situation. And Charlie is going to get a job. And Kit is suddenly aware of money for the first time in her life, which I think is very, very telling because the stock market crash would have happened when she was like six to seven. Mm -hmm. And you are often not aware of things in the world. You might just be aware of your family. Her family has been protected and sheltered for three years, and now it is real, right? Like, she's known that this thing is happening to other people, and now it's happening to her. And I think the exposition around all of that is handled really well. And I do think the mom and the dad are going to continue to be sort of foils for each other and kind of different perspectives on like keeping up appearances and and how do you sort of go through this because I don't think mom is gonna like give up so easily on garden club and stuff like that I don't think she will either and even as she's the one who's kind of really problem solving in that moment where like it's interesting because we find out with Kit and the way we find out is that Charlie tells her and then she's at first upset because she's like why didn't mom and dad tell me why did they tell you And he's like, well, because I can't go to college. So dad was telling me to explain why I can't go to college. And then she's Mm -hmm. like, oh. And she has empathy for him in that moment. And I thought that was like, it shows some real maturity there. It's a very honest human moment. But then it's the mom who drives into overgear, basically, again, because of wanting the family to survive. But also, I think with an eye to appearances, like the dad immediately starts going off downtown in a suit, trying to get a job. And... You know, there's an illustration in the book of men who are out selling apples because that's what they've been reduced to to get their family to survive. He's So he's off camera, so to speak, in this book. He's looking for work. Meanwhile, we get visited by the mom's, like, horrific relative, (laughs) Uncle Hendrick, who, frankly, is, like, not the person you want around during tough times because he kind of shows up. He didn't, like, they serve him iced tea, and he's like, look, I'll be candid with you. Your mom would be furious. Your mom would be like so dejected if she'd seen what you were reduced to. Like I told your you and your husband not to start that car dealership. Like could have told you this was going to happen. It's like you know I told you so is the last thing you want to hear during a tough time, and that's all he offers her. And he's like I'm not going to help you. Like you got to figure this out. And then you know what are you going to do? And the mom sort of like from nowhere is like we're going to take in borders. It's going to be fine. And and the mom has thought it through, though. Yeah, like, so, but, because then after she presents it, it's like, I don't know, I just said it, but it's like, no, I think you kind of thought about that because she had all the details kind of ironed out in that moment, it seemed like anyway. She has all different kinds of ideas of, like, people are going back to school. She's going to get nurses. She's going to, like, rearrange everyone. There are two things that I think also kind of give us as adult readers clues about that. 
Kit's very limited understanding of money as she discusses it with Ruthie is that her father like makes money at the car dealership and some of that money is given to her mother to basically do all of the budgeting for the family. And I think that paired with the way that her relative reacts about the way that they've used money, I think that's what informs like one of the most interesting conversations, which happens on the last few pages of the book, where Kit is talking about sort of her love of Robin Hood stories. We learn that Kit is kind of a cab where she's like, I don't believe in like sheriffs. I don't <laughs> I don't like that. She talks about wrongful convictions with Dick Tracy. And then Kit says to her mother, if rich people had to give some of their money to the poor, it would make the depression better. And her mother says it would help, but I don't think it would end the depression. To which Kit says, what will? And from there, we then get a kind of laundry list um, of like different things that people can do or should do. But I also think there's like an internal tension within this book about you know, like what it means to be poor in the United States, like what are sort of the reasons that that happens. I think it's very telling that in early discussions of Kit, Valerie Tripp like very much puts forward like this is an example of resilience, like an unexpected example of resilience. And she talks about how she wants people to read Kit about you know, being a girl who lives in a changing world, these are her words, about being resourceful, mindful. And her early tagline is that she can weather hard times with grit and gratitude. Very recently, like this year, American Girl changed her sort of superlative to be most likely to be called Little Miss Sunshine. Like, what a difference that is, though, actually, right? When you think of, like, for me, there's a huge distance between those. That is a huge distance. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to make of all of this. I think my, as I told you off air, like my response reading this book initially was almost feeling guilty. Like by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, why do I feel so good when on paper everything is horrible for this family and things are could seemingly just keep getting worse? Because at the end, it's like the emotion the book leaves you with And one of the words on the last page is hope. The mom says among those laundry lists, like people have to be, make some changes, like be open to changes, but also stay hopeful. And I think that that's kind of her positionality in writing this book is like, no matter what happens, we're all moving forward. I'm gonna keep it positive. And I don't know how to feel about that choice, except that like, obviously it makes sense for a kid's book, but yeah, I mean, it's a choice. Well, when we start, right, and when Kit learns that she's going to have to give up her bedroom because the Sterlings are moving in, right, we have, like, some sense of why the young boy Sterling is sick, but we don't really know. Like, Kit is very much in her feelings of, like, this is what's not fair, right, which is kind of a a pretty expected reaction of a nine-year-old whose life has still been pretty comfortable up to this point. And I think rather than giving us sort of an artificial scenario, I think we're going to actually like build with Kit an understanding of what injustice is. And I was thinking about an activity that my coworkers and I were trying to come up with earlier this year where we were trying to get kids to think about like fairness. Mm. And one thing we didn't want to do is say like, hey, when has something been unfair in your life? And obviously people come to that with very different experiences regardless of age. We didn't want people to walk away with like, you know, being forced to eat 
my green beans was unfair and this workers strike was about the same kind of unfairness right right? you don't want to level the differences but i do think it's fascinating that in the actual time she would have lived the bonus march on washington dc would have just happened this is the same year as the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby mm-hmm. and one in four people is unemployed like stuff is getting real and i think something realistic about this book is things are really just starting to come home in a very literal way and that's when we're meeting kit and i think that's a good artistic choice for this series i totally agree with that and i also to your point about the bonus army i think it was really smart that we learned very early in the book that kit's name comes from pack up your old kit bag and her mm-hmm. dad got that name for her because he used to sing that song when he served in world war one and I think that that's a really, really smart reference point to kind of have us walk through these books with this guy and be like, okay, you served your country in World War One in a war that to this day, everyone is like, we're not entirely sure what started this or like why we were in this per se. Like that was a hard war to sell. Yes, it was making the world safer democracy, whatever that meant at that time. But when he returns and then he has like presumably a decade of like some measure of prosperity, maybe as like a white guy in the Midwest, don't know his like background otherwise. But, you know, maybe he's one of those people who's like, what did I fight in that war for? You know, like now that he's dealing with all this hardship, like where's his head at? Yeah. And to that point, thinking about the fact that her brother is probably 17 or 18, the fact that he would have already been a married man, like a young married man, probably, but young and married and had a baby at home during the war. And then somehow this memory of this song about a kit is what inspires, you know, the naming of the daughter who's like actually Margaret (laughs) and is like not kit at all. Um, But yeah, to kind of think about his life trajectory and to think about like the continued explosion of newspapers in his time, there's something I really like about this character that she's absorbing certain things about the world she lives in, right? That like frequent newspaper coverage of things is seen as important and she's absorbed that. Also kind of a fun detail. So FDR is not president yet, but Roosevelt actually pays a visit to Ohio right at the time that this book is set. Mm. So I don't know that we're going to meet him over the course of the next book, but I do know that it was important to Valerie Tripp that she be able to get FDR stuff in there. And thinking about the summer and fall when this book came out, it was an election year. It was the year that George W. Bush was actually elected president. So, like, I think there's going to be some Democrat stuff that's going to come out. And I think Kit is going to be our sort of, like, childish, and I'm using that word deliberately, like, voice of socialism and Robin Hoodism. And I think there's going to be a lot of, like, pro-FDR stuff that's going to come out in the next few. Into that, big time. I, that's my guess. I really... That's my prediction. I, first of all, I just want to say that, like, the fact that her first name is actually Margaret makes me think that Val can't quit Molly, which is a common nickname no. for Margaret. <laughs> and so she was like, uh, okay, like, I guess I can't do Molly 2.0, so I will, like, have this other nickname ready to role, but I love that detail. And I also just love that her making her newspaper is like a really central hobby or like thing that we should know about her because it kind of builds in a storytelling benefit of obviously like we get things from her voice and her perspective in real time. But 
I also think that's very true of childhood that you seek out things to process things that are going on around you. And it's kind of like cool to think about her as like a 1930s like zine maker, like, you know, yeah. homemade magazines probably start in the 50s with fans of sci-fi. But it's cool to think about her as like an originator of that trend. And there's actually like historic examples of kids making newspapers, even from around like 1900 in different archives. If you look up brothers called the Nelson Brothers in New Hampshire, there's a website we can share of their homemade magazines and they just kind of document what's happening in their lives. But I think that this is such a really cool and special way of of kind of like telling the story of a child in this period. So I'm, I'm super, I really love that detail. Okay, folks, this letter is brought to you by the letter K for Kit Kitridge, as well as the people at HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. This is why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. It's fall, it's time to cozy up, save money, cook at home. It's a great time to experience delicious tastes and unparalleled convenience that comes with HelloFresh. Cooking can be a snap with all of their pre-sorted, pre-portioned ingredients that are coming from the farm to your doorstep in less than seven days. If you have a packed calendar this fall, the quick and easy meals like the 20-minute recipes, they make prep and everything else easy. So you're spending less time in the kitchen and more time doing things you love, like rereading books from your childhood. I am just not a person who enjoys spending any time in the grocery store. So for me, HelloFresh takes a lot of the guesswork, a lot of the hard work out of cooking and just brings everything right to home where the heart is and the dolls are living. So you want to use the code AmericanGirl65 for 65% off your order at HelloFresh and you will also get free shipping. So go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirl65 Use our code AmericanGirl65 to get that percent off and free shipping. Remember, this is America's number one meal kit in an episode dedicated to kit. So speaking of childhood, and this book has a lot of kind of like classic like secret garden and like little princess moments. Do we have a sense yet of what is happening with Sterling Howard? Because we get a lot of yeah. descriptions of him that lead me to believe he has polio, but I'm not certain. Yeah, thank you for bringing this up because he is a giant question mark to me as a character. Like basically what we learn is like he gets out of the car. So let me go back. When we're at the garden party, Mrs. Howard casually is like, oh, I won't be able to tend the hospital garden because I'm moving to Chicago to follow my husband who moved there for, quote, business opportunities. And everyone there's like, oh, boy, we know what that means. Like, he's looking for mm-hmm. a job. And she's like, well, like, we're going to be moving. So then everyone's like, oh, my God, she lost her house. And so the mom quickly pivots and is like, you could, you could stay here. You and Sterling could stay here. So they're moving in like overnight. Sterling gets out of the car. And all we learn from Kit is like, he looks much smaller than her and or Ruthie. So she's like, what's wrong with him? And we don't get an answer. But it's also no, like, we- can I just throw this out there? We also get told that Mrs. Howard is like his intermediary for everyone else in the household. Like, you are not, if you think you're going to talk to Sterling, guess again. Like, he's up in his room. She's bringing him dinner on a tray. He has a cold at one point. And I'm like, I'm sorry, should we be concerned about like a Munchausen's by proxy situation? Because then when Kit talks to him, it's like he's fine. 
One of the first things we learn about him is, quote, his head looked too big for his scrawny neck. Okay, well, that's not a crime. That doesn't mean that you're sick either. I love that Kit tries to connect with him over Ernie Lombardi and she brings him a newspaper article. Like, that is definitely some, like, hint of her future love language. She was like, I clipped an article for you. Um, I love that moment between them. I don't know what you're supposed to take away from him, but he does also create an opportunity for Kit and Ruthie and others to have conversations about, like, So they're both readers, like they're really avid readers and they're writers and they kind of like live in their books a little bit and they try to find a reference point. Like this is so American Girl, the way that we do with Molly and others. They're like, so what is he like? When we play, is he gonna be the good guy, the bad guy? Is he gonna be like a Robin Hood? There's this funny line, boys like to be the bad guy, but they're like, well, that doesn't really exactly fit with like exactly how he's supposed to be and Kit does this in her own life as well um, when she says I'd rather sleep in a tree house like Robin Hood like she has this vision for how she wants things to be that are all informed by books and stories and again like Ruthie coming in like real talk she's like I've read books where people have no money and she's like but that's where it ends yeah I mean you have to wonder like what is Ruthie's home life like They don't seem to hang out there, but I think it's probably going to serve at some point as a contrast for what ends up going on with Kit. Like, Ruthie is definitely hanging over there a lot, but I think something about Sterling is it'll be a question of, like, okay, how does he get involved? What does, like, manhood look like for him? I'm excited he's here for the ride. I'm curious as to whether he's actually ill or not, but he gives Kit her first, like, kind of flare of feeling like life has just become totally unjust. Um, She's hanging out in his room. She tries to exit. Mrs. Howard comes in. There's like a whole big crash of everything. And again, this is something I think Valerie Tripp does the best out of all of these authors. As an adult reading these books, you're kind of like, this really is the last thing that we needed. Like, we did not need a big spill today. We sure didn't need a big spill today. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like, I think she's very good at presenting realistic feelings kids have. And that whole thing of like, you know, Mrs. Howard comes in the door with a tray at the same time kids going out and there's like a teacup crashes and breaks and whatever. And Kit, that leads Kit to spiral into like an it's not fair, total freak out because basically she's like, the mom comes in and blames Kit, even though Mrs. Howard dropped the tray and goes out of her way to make Mrs. Howard feel good. And then there's no follow-up with Kit that's like, hey, accidents happen. Instead, she's like, Kit, like, this is your fault. Please be more careful, yada, yada, yada. And Kit's like literally taking to the page, writing down, this is not fair. And her brother finds it. Everybody's like seeing it. She's not subtle. And it's very human, but it's interesting that Sterling doesn't address that. But when she's up in the attic, kind of situating herself in her new reality, he comes up with the photo, the newspaper piece that she was rushing to show him that caused this whole crash. And he brings a thumbtack and is like, you could put this up on your wall. And then she proceeds to like decorate the room, like seemingly as she would want to. So it is like a nice moment of connection, but you're also like, Sterling, where are you in this? Like, who are you? I hope we get more from Sterling. I hope that no one is making him sick on purpose. I think I've I'm also scared. just projected. I'm scared. 
I'm not not scared. Like, I don't want to turn her into the new Tia Dolores if she doesn't deserve it. But, like, prove me wrong, I guess, you know? Well, it's Um, like, let him speak. (laughs) Why can't we (laughs) hear from him? (laughs) Well, I think there's going to be a lot more people in the household very soon. And I think there's going to be more chaos for Kit to kind of contend with. Like, something she tries to sort of manifest in this book is having more things to write about. She's like, I don't have enough good stories. There's not enough things changing. How are we going to turn this around? Ruthie basically says, I I have no idea. And then sort of fate intervenes. I do think something for us to kind of keep our thumb on over these next few books is... I would say like this deep-seated fear that's driving the narrative, which is like, what if they become poor? Right. And and the fact that I think that that genuinely is something that they are afraid of, that it's an unknown, they don't know how they would deal with it. And I, I one thing I do know is like, Ru- Ruthie and Kit are gonna learn more about the truth of the circumstances that the family is actually in. And I'm intrigued how this family will deal with those financial conversations because I find it hard to believe that mom didn't know stuff was going sideways and yet nonetheless invited the Howards to stay. Yeah, I mean, her surprise at this moment is really the biggest question mark. Because as you're saying, if she's receiving money and, and in charge of all household expenses, I think the area of surprise is we learned that the dad not only wasn't making money at the dealership, but he was spending down their savings so he didn't have to lay anyone off. So he's paying everyone's wages until he decided to just close the dealership. So it could be possible that he's giving her money per usual and she is not aware that he's spending down the savings because perhaps I mean, in this period, you know, women couldn't, you know, own a bank account, um, take out, open a bank account on their own. And like my grandmother used to tell me that she used to just have to blindly sign checks um, and my grandfather would like, you know, deposit them. So it's possible maybe she didn't know that the savings were gone, but, and that's kind of where the information breakdown happened, but I don't know. No, this book wants us to know that car sales were sky high in the 1920s, that they obviously went down in the 1930s. They give us some backstory on like why so many men were selling apples. That was very interesting. This is not a pro Hoover book, and we will discuss that later at another time. This is like an aggressively anti-Hoover book. But I think that the way that poverty is described in the back is like very much a reflection of 1990s and particularly like Clinton policy. There is a line um, towards the end where it says, many people had nowhere to turn for help and were deeply ashamed to go on relief or to accept free meals in soup kitchens run by charities. And a book that I think like frames this really well is by Linda Gordon and it's called Pitied But Not Entitled. And it talks about the various ways that particularly as Roosevelt becomes president, like all manner of money was spent, like tons of money was spent and put into ensuring that certain kinds of men and certain races of men continued to be wage earners. And then when women or mothers or people with children or children needed support, it was welfare. Right. It had this whole other kind of tinge when really it's all government spending. It's all government budgeting. It's spending. But this kind of notion of like, well, some people had a right or they had earned certain kinds of support from the government and other people were being pitied or given charity. 
And I think it's striking that it says like, this made people feel ashamed when one of the huge like kind of marks of the Clinton presidency was getting people to not be given any kind of public assistance, but also without another plan. Yeah, I mean, I think the framing of this, as you're saying, kind of suggests that you should feel ashamed if you have to accept government aid or support. And yet, you know, we don't think about corporations that accept bailouts as feeling shame for accepting the bailout or any of the kind of financial benefits they get to save them from ruin. It's like it's always you're saying a trick of language and how who we think deserves to be pitied or shamed for accepting government support. And it's kind of interesting, too, to think like what would have happened if Kit came out in 2008? Like, how would we how would that have been framed maybe differently or would it have been framed the same way of like dealing with our own you know great financial meltdowns across multiple industries including the car industry like you know how would this have been i guess framed differently or would it have been framed differently i don't think any of this robin hood stuff would be in there because i think in the wake of occupy wall street i think that would have all gotten x'd out to be honest yeah i i agree with that and i also but i do think that the kind of positioning of fdr as like the savior in 1934 running on a campaign of hope would have been too tempting Mm. an echo for them in 2008 but i think in similar ways like you know one person can't define a period or shouldn't define all of the changes or kind of things that have happened. And nor do I think that, you know, Obama or FDR would probably say that of their own presidencies. But I think it's it's obviously more complicated a story. Like to your point, Hoover did set up some things that allowed the New Deal to happen. I think, you know, maybe we'll disagree about other issues of his legacy, but you know, being fair to Hoover, that's not in peek into the past. And maybe they didn't want to get that nuanced with their childhood readers, but maybe they will get there in the next book. I don't know. But I think it's also important to note that like everyone in peek into the past is white again. And here we are in 2000. And it's like, did we not learn anything from earlier ways of, you know, writing about the past and the peek into the past? No, I think it's very much in line with the way that like other other kind of like American Girl products were made. And there is some, you know, hint of dissension, right? Like not everyone was a supporter of FDR, right? Okay, I have a feeling the cranky uncle is gonna be like, he's packing the Supreme Court. Like, oh, I think God. he's gonna come back. Maybe he and Mrs. Howard will fall in love. I don't know. I don't oh, think there is a husband. God. Sterling doesn't know who his dad is. No, I don't know. We don't who, know. Who, who knows? That's we like, don't know that That's man. like a whole separate... Like, we don't know what she's putting in the soup. We don't Oof. know what anyone really has going on. But I think, like, keeping a close eye on, like, the way that they talk about poverty in these books or, like, the way that they kind of represent that, I think in our popular cultural understanding, thinking about famous photographs of this era you know, like the crisis that kind of got put forward was like the poor white mother, Mm -hmm. right? Like the migrant mother captured by Dorothea Lange and others, you know, kind of this idea of like, this is a crisis because this group of people is poor now, right? And not really having a bigger understanding sometimes, I think of the ways that like poverty had plagued people all through the 1920s. Like, I am not coming for Claudia at all. I think she's a super cool character. Claudia is also a very comfortable character yet again. And I I think that there are so many reasons to create a character that is able to experience like black joy and celebration in Harlem. 
totally get that. I also think it's just kind of typical of American Girl more broadly to position people in like a lot of comfort. Yeah. And and I think that's just typical of the brand. It's not even a criticism. It's just like a I fact. think their greatest absence as a brand is dealing with matters of class because they've gestured towards yeah. issues of erasure around race. Um, you know, successfully or not. But I think they have never wanted to deal with any kind of character that is not situated in comfort of middle class. Like even in this Great Depression story, what's going to define this family is their fall from relative comfort. What if you never knew relative comfort? What if you were part of a structural inequity that had you be a part of a generation of generations in a family that had never been middle class? Like, what would that story look like? What if this was a Dust Bowl story? What if this was set somewhere else? Like, there's so many questions or what ifs we could ask. But I think in a meta way, they can't go there because it would kind of give the lie to why their products cost so much and the kind of, you know, comfort they need for people buying the products to not feel isolated in order to kind of keep the brand going in a lot of ways. I'll say too, if people are interested, uh, going back over a year ago, we were on the podcast Girls Like Us and we talked about Christmas After All, The Great Depression Diary of Minnie Swift, which is set in Indiana, but is set in the same year as this book, just a few months later at Christmas time. And is, I will say, like a very bizarre uh, window choice <laughs> into the depression and what would have happened approximately four months after this. But I kind of recommend it because it's a very similar Midwest story and like a truly very strange choice in how one chooses to like drill down into the depression. Also mentioning that because people have asked if we would cover it and we don't have to because we already have. And that was a super fun episode that we did with the girls like us team so that's out there in the world check it out yeah i think that's that was a very fun conversation highly recommend i would also love to hear from folks or just have people start thinking about their own family histories and the stories they've been told that are passed down because anytime we do a 20th century character i'm always really curious about like what comes up for people in terms of their family stories that they tell versus like kind of the family story we're getting here And I think that will become even more interesting in light of we're going to be reading a book for the November Patreon episode uh, called Ancestor Trouble. And it's about one woman's tour through her own genealogy. It's like a memoir and it's sort of about genealogy and like what meaning we make of it. But, you know, it's it's just on my mind because like reading this book, my grandmother had one brother named Charlie. So does Kit. She grew up in the Great Depression and her family survived by taking in borders. So it's like there's a lot happening for me with this book where I'm like, whoa, like, A lot of, like, similarities, I guess, although Kit is definitely better off than my grandmother was. Who had better hair? My grandmother. Sorry, no question. Okay. I mean, there is is no situation where someone's like, what about Fluffy versus this person? And I'm like, the other person. Like, it's just not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. We also will be coming out with some resource guides that were created by Anna Lee, who worked with us these past few months, uh, one on Rebecca and one on Yay. Kit. And so to the question of like real recipes from the era, like deeper dives into history, especially with questions about like race and ethnicity and class and, and how the depression looked and felt and smelled and everything else really different depending on who you were. That's something that she uh, really took to and also thought a lot about her own family stories as well. So 
be on the lookout for that. We're doing some fun stuff on Patreon. We've got watch along scheduled all for the rest of the year. Everything from, you know, the old Adams family from the 90s to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. So definitely some fun things. Um, you don't have to just live with us in the Great Depression through the end of the year. I mean, you can if you want, but I mean, there's going to be... Oh, you're totally welcome We're going to be living out loud on Patreon. I'm so pumped about watching The Adams Family. And if somebody wants to even like bake, I'm so like, I just have to say, Annalie did such incredible work. I can't wait for people to check out what she's done. And, you know, maybe I'll try some recipes while we watch The Adams Family. If people want to make some and share them on Discord, I could be convinced to be part of that. So, you know, like it's just, it's a really fun community on Discord. If you've not been, like we talk about pop culture, we talk about all kinds of stuff and, you know, it's just, it's cool to be part of this community. And if people want to find you directly, where should they do that? Please feel free to message me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Instagram is where you're more likely to see what I'm up to. I posted the other day that I watched kind of out of like pity, you might say, Anna got her booster and I agreed to watch the extended version of Lord of the Rings, which I've never seen any of them. So that happened. I just shared that and I was amazed by people's like very different responses to how they feel about that franchise. So that was interesting. Have you seen any of those movies, Allison? Mary, you know I have seen them all multiple okay. times and sometimes in a row. Okay, wow. Um, you know, I'm I'm just like sitting with that news and with like everything I saw in that movie. So, you know, feel free to contact me. And if you want to talk about Funny Girl, <laughs> if you want to talk about any of Allison's not-so-fave movies, where might people find you? So I'm at Allison Horrix, uh, just first and last name on Twitter and Instagram. You want to talk about any of the true crime happenings that have been going on? There are many. Um, any of those types of things, you can find me there. You can also follow the show, um, American Girls Pod or A Girls Pod on Twitter, as it were. And we love to hear from you. We even have a hotline. So look us up, give us a call, and just be in touch. And Adnan is free. How do you feel? Do you want to make a statement about that? So I don't, I don't have any kind of formal statement, but I think it's fascinating, you know, serial kind of, which started so many other podcasts, including like my real deep interest in podcast, you know, it got so many things, it did so many things right, but now in retrospect, it got so many things wrong. Mm -hmm. And so if you haven't kind of touched any of that material in a while, Adnan Syed was released from prison on the same day that the queen's funeral took place so yeah you could say i've been busy wow lots of juxtapositions lots happening but yeah so if people want to get into it with you they should be in touch but you know lots of conversations happening we'll keep having them on this show we're so happy all of you are with us for this kit journey and we will see you on our next episode (laughs) 